little secret. These people that you're sitting with, this church, they love this stuff. They love Bible prophecy. They study it all the time. And I want to extend to you a warm invitation to keep on studying because all we've done is just scrape the surface. So I'll let them tell you what's coming next in your location. One of the most confusing things about the subject of Bible prophecy is the fact that Christians seem to disagree on so much of it. So that kind of makes you wonder, is it possible that all of us are just guessing that Bible prophecy doesn't actually mean anything? Or is it possible that our generation has just made something very simple far too complicated? Not too long ago, I was listening to a Hollywood personality describing his childhood, and he made the comment that Jewish families refer to their kids as nice, as in, he's a nice Jewish boy. But then he said, Christians call each other good, as in, my daughter married a good Christian boy, but nice, not so much. And the audience laughed, as if they were all aware that Christians just aren't very nice. And I'll be honest, I've got to admit, it kind of put me back on my heels because even though it was an anti-Christian sentiment, I've got to admit that sometimes that guy kind of has a point. It seems like a lot of Christians in their attempt to be good or right just stop being nice. And it's really kind of unfortunate because that's not the reputation we're supposed to have. So when it comes to the subject of Bible prophecy, Christians really need to be on their guard. I mean, one group of Christians says the second coming is going to be like this, and another group says, no, it's going to be like that. And what happens sometimes is that when we find a group of people we don't agree with, we write them off as bad Christians or non-believers. And sometimes we even start to question each other's salvation. And that is completely inappropriate. And besides, and this always comes as a shock to a lot of people. For the first 18 and a half centuries of the Christian church, there was actually widespread agreement on what prophecy says and how we're supposed to read it. Except for a few minor details, all of our ancestors read Bible prophecy virtually the same way. But then, starting in the middle of the 19th century, more than 1,800 years after Christ, we started to get this wide variety of opinions to the point where you can walk into a bookstore today, buy a hundred books on prophecy, and get a hundred different opinions. But knowing what I know about the Bible, and knowing what I know about God, I refuse to believe that He doesn't know how to make Himself clear. I am not convinced that the Bible tells a hundred different stories and that the stories all conflict with each other. No, I think the problem is somewhere else. 
The problem is that our generation has forgotten how to read the Bible, or even worse, we've just stopped reading it altogether. Let's admit it. In a day where Bible study might be five careless minutes in the morning, you and I are not as fluent in the language of the Bible as our ancestors were, because they took the time to read the whole thing, and they even knew it chapter and verse. So quite a few years ago now, I decided that I would be serious about studying the Bible. And instead of trying to sort out a thousand different opinions, I wanted to see what the Bible actually said about the second coming for myself. Now that was no small assignment because there were something like 2,500 allusions to the second coming between Genesis and Revelation, or at least that's the number Dwight L. Moody came up with. So here's what I want to do. In the short time that you and I have together, there's no way to look at more than 2,000 passages, but we can look at a few things we know for sure, five absolutes about the second coming of Christ that you can take to the bank, stuff we can all agree on because it's just that clear. So let's get started with absolute number one. The Bible teaches that the second coming is a literal event involving the actual physical return of Jesus. Now, I know that for a lot of you, that seems like kind of an obvious point, but there are people in this world right now who claim that the second coming is nothing but an allegory for spiritual awakening or some kind of other mystical event. But the way the Bible writers put it is abundantly clear. There really is a second coming, and it really will be Jesus of Nazareth who comes back in person. I mean, just listen to this amazing passage found in the book of Acts where we find a story that happens at the ascension of Christ, the very moment he returns to heaven. Here's what it says. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, that might just be one of the most useful passages about the second coming found anywhere in the Bible. Notice, it says the disciples actually watched Jesus return to heaven, and then an angel told them that the very same Jesus would come back in person, and that he would come back the same way he went. So if you want to know what the second coming is going to be like, this is a pretty good passage because it gives us a lot of information. But of course, the question you might want to ask is this. Exactly which Jesus did they watch go into heaven? Because that's really important. And the answer is this. They watched a literal, physical Jesus. He wasn't a ghost or some kind of mysterious, non-physical being. He was real and he was flesh and blood. And the reason I know that is because the Bible says so explicitly. You see, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples, but they were having a little trouble believing it was really him, which is only natural because dead people don't usually come back to life. I mean, you might be a little shell-shocked too if one of your dead relatives dropped by the house. So here's what happened according to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. 
So now we know for sure that the resurrection was a real event. It was really Jesus who came back from the dead. He actually rose from the dead with a real physical body. And that's why the Bible often says it's the Son of Man who comes back in the clouds of glory, because incredibly, the second member of the Godhead has chosen to remain part of our human race forever. So Jesus rose from the dead as a real physical human being, and it's that same Jesus who literally returns. That much we know for sure. So let's go on to the second absolute, because we can find it in this same story. The Bible says the disciples watched Jesus return to heaven, and he comes back the same way he went. So that means that when Jesus returns, you're going to see it, because it's a visible event. In the very first chapter of the book of Revelation, John says that when Jesus returns, every eye will see him. Not, not some people, not just the right people, but absolutely everybody. In fact, that's what Jesus himself says. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You know, when Jesus returns, you're not going to have to check your Twitter feed to see what happened. You're not going to have to watch the news or hear about it at the water cooler, because when the Son of Man comes back, the whole world sees it. In fact, the Bible says it's going to be undeniably obvious like a lightning strike. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So we know for sure that when Jesus returns, we're all going to see it. And then the Bible tells us we're also going to hear it, which gives us our third absolute. I mean, just listen to the way that Jesus describes what happens in Matthew chapter 24. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. According to Jesus, the second coming is going to be loud. And how loud exactly is it going to be? Well, loud enough to wake the dead. One of the best-loved passages about the Second Coming is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And here's what it says. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question, and this one's not too hard to figure out. If God himself shouts into our world, do you suppose you might just hear that? And if the dead start popping out of their graves, do you think you might notice it? Well, of course you would. So we know the second coming is going to be the biggest commotion in the history of our planet, which brings me to our fourth absolute certainty. It's going to be what you might call a glorious event. And I know that probably goes without saying, but the Bible repeats this a number of times, so I want to be really sure that you and I pay attention. The Bible says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Now, I'm kind of running ahead of myself for just a bit, but I want you to notice an important point that Jesus just made, and that's the fact that when he comes, everybody receives their reward at that moment. But we'll come back to that in just a minute. Because for now, 
I want you to notice that Jesus comes in the glory of the Father, which is something that you and I haven't been able to see since the moment the human race fell into sin. Go back to the Old Testament, and you might remember that after spending just a few moments in God's presence, Moses' face was so brilliant that the children of Israel had to ask him to wear a veil. But at the second coming, there will be no veil, and the full glory of God will be on display. And it also says that Jesus will bring his angels with him, and not just a few of them. In fact, the Bible indicates that heaven is actually empty for a little while because all the angels come to this world to pick us up. Here, let me show you this from Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Now, how many angels do you suppose that might be? A hundred, a thousand, a million? It's, it's a lot more than that. In Revelation 5, the Bible tells us there are 10,000 times 10,000 angels gathered around the throne of God, which would be something like a hundred million. And then it adds thousands of thousands, which might be an addition, or it might even be a multiplier. And Daniel chapter 5 tells us pretty much the same thing. There are 10,000 times 10,000 angels gathered at the judgment hour, and that's a lot of angels. So think about this. The presence of just one angel at the tomb of Jesus was enough to make tough Roman soldiers swoon and pass out. So what do you think a hundred million might look like? This is going to be the most glorious thing the world has ever seen. And that's only appropriate because when Jesus returns, it's going to be the end of this earth's history as we know it. Now, remember what I said a minute ago, because I promised I'd come back to it. When Jesus returns, he brings his rewards with him, and we all get our reward at the very same moment, which means there are no second chances after the second coming of Christ. There is no further opportunity to get things right with God because the clock has run out. I want you to notice very carefully what the Bible actually says. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. So, there's our fifth absolute. When Jesus returns, his work for this planet is finished. The judgment is closed, the decisions are made, and it's over. And that much we know from the plain statements of the Bible. So th there you have it. Five things we know for sure about the second coming of Christ. It's going to be a literal physical event. Every eye is going to see it. Every ear is going to hear it. It's going to be the most glorious event in the history of the world. And it's also going to be the end, the final curtain on human history as we know it. So what I find absolutely remarkable is how easy and plain the statements of the Bible are when you just open the book and read it for yourself. It's really not that complicated, and you don't need all those confusing charts and diagrams to understand this. Now, of course, sometimes charts and diagrams are very useful, but when it comes to the essentials of the second coming, this really isn't that hard. Not when you take the time to just read the whole Bible. So let's ask an important question now, because as far as prophetic history goes, we are a long way down the timeline. So the question I want to ask is really pretty simple. And I want to ask it because 
I always want to be sure that I'm getting my advice straight from the Bible. The question is this, how does the most prevalent theory about the second coming in the world today square with the absolute certainties the Bible just gave us? That would be really important to know because I want to be like the people who lived in the ancient city of Berea. The Bible says they were commendable because they didn't accept any new ideas without checking them against what the Bible actually says. And to be honest, the most popular theory in Western Christianity today really is a new idea. It pretty much wasn't there for the first 1800 years of Christian history. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong, but when it comes to the most important event in human history, I want to be sure that I'm sticking with just the Bible. The most popular theory today goes something like this. At some point in world history, without warning, Jesus will come and take all the Christian believers out of this world to be with him in heaven. And then the world wakes up some morning and discovers all the Christians are gone. Then for the next seven years, the nation of Israel makes a pact with the Antichrist, and the Antichrist will break the treaty right in the middle of that seven-year period. And at that point, we get a horrible persecution, and then Jesus returns again, this time in brilliant glory to set up his kingdom on earth. Now, admittedly, there are a lot of variations, but ever since the middle of the 1800s, and especially since the middle of the 1900s, that's the most popular theory in Western Christendom by far. And it is, frankly, the theory that I was raised on. Now, some people refer to it as the secret rapture, or the pre-tribulation rapture, or just the pre-trib rapture. But even though it's very popular right now, I still want to ask some Bible questions because, well, the Bible's where I want to stand. So quite a few years ago now, I started to ask some really important questions like, where in the Bible do you actually find a description of Jesus sneaking into the world and stealing away with all the Christians? Now, a lot of people are going to point to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as evidence. But if you remember, well, that's one of the noisiest verses found anywhere in the pages of the Bible. It says there's a great shout and the trumpet blows and Jesus descends from heaven and all the graves are opened. You know, it was that verse that made Dr. Roland Bingham, who used to be editor of Christianity Today, start to question whether or not there were actually two phases to the second coming of Christ, a, a secret coming for the Christians and then a glorious coming later on. If you hold the theory of a secret rapture of the church, he said, try out that simple question on yourself. What question would that be? Well, where do you find it in the Bible? Some people say that Jesus comes first for the believers and the wicked never see him during that event. But the Bible is absolutely clear that both the righteous and the wicked see Jesus at exactly the same moment. I mean, just listen to this. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, did you catch that? we all experience the second coming at the very same moment, both the righteous and the wicked. And that's the way the Bible describes it every single time. In fact, just a few verses later, Jesus tells us it's going to be like the flood back in Noah's day, where the righteous and the wicked experience the storm at exactly the same time. But there's even more, because now we have to deal with the Antichrist. 
According to the popular theory out there today, the Christian church is long gone by the time the Antichrist appears. But you know, I know that can't be true because of something Paul says in his second letter to the Thessalonians. You see, the Thessalonians had gotten so excited by Paul's description of Christ's return in his first letter that they were expecting the second coming at any moment. So to make sure they didn't do anything rash, Paul writes them a second time and explains that something important has to happen before Jesus comes for the church. Listen to this. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the word he uses here is parousia. Remember the grand entrance into this world. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, so we're clearly talking about the Christian church, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but Paul couldn't be any more explicit. Jesus does not come for the church unless the Antichrist has been revealed to the world. Now, I know it's popular to suggest that the second coming of Christ is what they call imminent, which means it could happen at any moment throughout history without any warning. But that's not what Paul says. He says, Antichrist comes first. So that doesn't sound like the popular theory at all. And I know people like to say Jesus comes as a thief in the night, which means he sneaks into the world and disappears with the church. But if you read the whole Bible carefully, it never says anywhere Jesus comes secretly. Here, here, let me show you. This is found in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, a lot of people stop right there and they say, look, Jesus sneaks into the world very quietly. But the only way you can make it say that is to never read the whole thing. I mean, look at what it actually says. Let's read the whole thing. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Here, here it is again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. You see, the, the reason the Bible describes the second coming as a thief in the night is because it comes as a surprise. I mean, think of it in terms of a home invasion instead of a cat burglar. I mean, a street gang just kicks open your front door. That's a surprise, but it's not a secret. And what the Bible is telling us is that now is the time to be ready. But doesn't the Bible also teach that some will be left behind? Well, yes, it does, but it's not exactly what we've been told in this day and age. Here's what it says. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So let's actually think about that for a minute because it's the opposite of what we usually hear. It says the wicked are taken and the righteous are left behind. And then it says this, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. 
two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now, what I've always been told is that the wicked are left behind, but that's not what Jesus actually says. It says they're taken, as in taken out. Both the righteous and the wicked experienced the flood at the very same time, and Noah knew and was ready for the catastrophe. He was safe, but the wicked refused to listen. They were caught by surprise. Now, I don't want you to take my word for any of this because I'm just one more preacher with one more opinion. The only place you should go for answers is your Bible. But as you go and study, I would encourage you to ask one important question. Why is it that for more than 1,800 years, nobody taught a secret pre-tribulation rapture of the church? Why can't you find it in the pages of the Bible? I mean, there's no question there's a rapture. Jesus does rapture the church. It's just an old Latin word, harpazo, that means caught up into the air. So that does happen. We do go up to meet Jesus in the air. But why can't you find a description anywhere in the Bible of a world that goes on after the Christians disappear? And if it's not in the Bible, where exactly did this idea come from? I think the answer is going to knock your socks off. And it's also going to explain an awful lot of things that have been confusing us in the modern Christian world. You are not going to want to miss what comes next. Well, thanks, Sean. Now, I can't wait for the next episode. But for now, it's time to take out lesson number three and dig just a little bit deeper into the five things that we know for sure about the second coming of Christ. 